Hello, I'm Jeremy Marshall, and welcome to my talk, Finding Your Place in God's Neighborhood, Reading the Sermon on the Mount with Mr. Rogers. A little bit of background on me. Um, I actually uh, wrote my master's thesis at Fried Hardman University in 2007 on interpreting the Sermon on the Mount for social embodiment. I have taught uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, in churches, in classes many times, uh, and continued to research and wrestle with uh, that text and its implications for the Christian life and Christian community. Moreover, I am uh, a decided fan of Mr. Rogers, lifelong fan, and in 2019, I actually preached through the Gospel of Matthew at uh, Central Church of Christ in Stockton, California, and the series was called God's Neighborhood, and it was using uh, the, the neighborhood idea as a metaphor that can be understood in uh, present reality for the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, which is a massive uh, feature in Matthew's gospel and indeed the synoptic gospels and in fact scripture as a whole. One of the things that I usually do when I'm giving a lecture or a class like this is that I, uh, I kind of give out a, a handout with resources for you to, uh, you know, for further exploration. Um, because of the format that we're going in this year, I'm not able to do that. So I'm just going to tell you uh, some resources that uh, I've used, particularly in uh, kind of guiding my thoughts, assembling my thoughts on on uh, the work of Mr. Rogers and the thought of Mr. Rogers. And these are also uh, ways for maybe you to explore uh, his world, <laughs> his neighborhood, and uh, you know, kind of think, well, how can I apply this uh, perhaps in my reading, not only of the Sermon on the Mount, but in how I, I present scripture? Is, is this a way that, you know, kind of a, a touchstone, a cultural touchstone that I can use uh, to, to make something that I'm preaching or teaching uh, more relevant, um, kind of kind of connect more with my audience. And so a uh, couple of books that I would recommend. Um, one is The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers by Amy Hollingsworth. Uh, this was published in, in Tom, by Thomas Nelson. In 2007, uh, it's based on a series of letters and conversations that uh, the author actually had with Fred Rogers over the years. Um, another interesting book. This is more of kind of a kind of an academic study of uh, Mr. Rogers. It's Peaceful Neighbor: Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers by Michael. G. Long. This was published by Abingdon, or no, excuse me, Westminster John Knox Press in 2015. 
And then what I've used as source books kind of over the years for quotes from Mr. Rogers are the two books, uh, The World According to Mr. Rogers and Life's Journeys According to Mr. Rogers. These were both published by Hyperion Books, and they're kind of gift book editions, but they are um, wonderful source books for um, th things that Mr. Rogers said quotes, ideas that you can pull, and they are all kind of um, organized under headings. Uh, so you can even think about, well, what am I preaching? What am I teaching? Like I said, if you want to apply this beyond the Sermon on the Mount and figure out other ways to use Mr. Rogers in your ministry, uh, you can kind of look at, at headings um, in those books and say, well, maybe he's got something that's uh, relevant to to what I'm preaching and what I'm teaching. I would also highly recommend that you watch, um, of course, the biopic with Tom Hanks was, was very popular, but I would actually highly recommend that you watch the documentary, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, came out in 2018, directed by Morgan Neville. This has got a lot of, of footage of, of Mr. Rogers and a lot of interviews with people who knew him, um, it really gives you a good context for his life and uh, his ministry. I'd also suggest PBS is still putting out really wonderful collections, kind of best of collections. And the two that I have found um, really most helpful are the uh, It's a Beautiful Day collection and the Would You Be Mine collection. And uh, those have got a lot of really poignant uh, moments with Mr. Rogers, some of the greatest uh, episodes in terms of what he explored um, talking to children and also what he explored in the neighborhood of make-believe. And so those are resources I would heartily recommend. Now, some may be wondering, and I think these are fair questions, why the Sermon on the Mount and why Mr. Rogers? Um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, let's start there is an evergreen for the people of God, uh, much like the Ten Commandments provided uh, the template uh, to spiritually and ethically form and inform and reform uh, the people of Israel. Of course, they continue to have that power and uh, that role in the Christian life, but certainly the Sermon on the Mount, uh, once again, uh, the Word of God delivered on the mountain, continues to have a defining role in uh, forming and informing and reforming Christian community and Christian moral reasoning. Uh, so, therefore, it uh, is always an evergreen, it should always be a live conversation among the people of God. Mr. Rogers, in particular, we have seen culturally an uptick um, in remembering the life and the work of Fred Rogers, and I think that this is not simply nostalgia, even though that's there, but uh, as as we kind of have these very divisive and 
increasingly ugly, it seems, cultural conversations and um, continuing issues surrounding race and, and violence and, and power and worldview. We see these continuing to be violent clashes. Mr. Rogers was able to walk into those spaces and in a very deliberate, decided, resolute, but also uh, kind and gentle in a way that you understood that he was very secure in what he believed. He was able to work through those issues in ways where you, you never doubted where Mr. Rogers stood, but in ways that he was able to communicate um, to a wide assortment of people and dispositions and worldview, not just the children that he would be particularly addressing in his work, but also in the ways that he would address um, parents and uh, even politicians. And so in that regard, um, his voice is one that I think needs to be recovered and uh, respected and explored further in our time. few words now on how we're going to proceed with uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount in light of Mr. Rogers. First of all, I'm going to let you know up front, I'm, uh, any scripture references are going to be from the New International Version, I believe the 2011 edition, because it's the version I got right in front of me. Um, secondly, we're not going to be able to obviously tackle in an in-depth way the whole Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to choose some salient passages as we go along and really kind of help you think conceptually how you would use Mr. Rogers' work in uh, any portion of this text, because once again, one of the things that I would like to to kind of give you or a way to think about um, beyond this, is is there a way to use uh, his work elsewhere? So we're kind of going to be giving examples and kind of teaching you or kind of suggesting how to think through uh, those interpretive questions. The other thing is this, the Sermon on the Mount, in terms of just how you approach it, and that's incredibly controversial because, of course, there are those who would approach it very much as this is a, uh, a template for radical Christian living in the world. And so, you know, they would demand uh, the pacifism and, and whatnot. Um, others would would say, and I'm probably more sympathetic with this, the kind of Lutheran Reformed reading that ultimately what the Sermon on the Mount functions as is uh, law, 
which then drives us to despair of ever being able to fulfill its ideas so that we throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ who has perfectly fulfilled the law for us. That, once again, I would be much more sympathetic personally to that understanding. And yet, I don't think that having said that, that it is good, wise, or helpful to divorce ourselves and and our church context and uh, witness to the world from the vision that Christ, in fact, um, did present on the Sermon on the Mount. And so, uh, something that uh, that is helpful to me, I think, is we think of... Uh, pursuing sanctified lives and sanctified community uh, informed by the Sermon on the Mount is that we think in terms of, of Mr. Rogers and his imagination, both in terms of the neighborhood of make-believe, if you remember um, in every episode, he would take viewers to the, the neighborhood of make-believe so that they could see um, issues and, and conflicts and, and struggles sort of worked out in this very constructive and low-key and kind of non-threatening way um, uh, between the puppet and, and human characters who inhabited the neighborhood of make-believe. But I'm even going to argue that the segments that focused on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood itself in his living room or as he met neighbors uh, there in his home or um, just outside um, in his yard or on his porch were also imaginings that Mr. Rogers was putting forth of what community, what neighboring can and should uh, look like. There's an ideal there. And so I'm, I'm suggesting that we approach the Sermon on the Mount in the same way um, letting it inspire our imaginations, um, both individually, once again, and corporately as a church, of what it means to live as God's people, that um, shining city on a hill that Jesus talks about, that the world sees the good that we do and glorifies the Heavenly Father, um, that we, we kind of use the Sermon on the Mount very much in a way that it informs our imaginations in what that looks like in Christian community, even, even knowing that we are never, ever going to perfectly fulfill it because we are, um, of course, fallen and sinful and weak. We are Genesis 3 people um, living in Genesis 3 bodies and Genesis 3 uh, world. And, but so therefore, I'm going to really suggest that we um, really use our imaginations and, and engage those as we consider what Christ calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's consider the audience for the Sermon on the Mount. That's important, of course, if you're a preacher or a teacher, you also have to consider your audience. But we know that in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus had begun to go out, so this is just before 
um, Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had gone around uh, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So one of the things ultimately that I would suggest is that uh, let's think of kingdom of heaven as God's neighborhood. Let's think of kingdom of heaven as God's benevolent reign and God's restoring reign. Um, who is he saying this to? Who is he saying, you know what, turn from what you are doing and come uh, toward God's neighborhood? And of course, we know his first disciples uh, were the fishermen, um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So they were, let's say, day laborers. <laughs> but listen to Matthew 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So these were people who were in synagogues. These were people who were, uh, let's say, church people. Um, there were people who had diseases and sickness. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. And so uh, in Christ's audience, we see people who would have what we would call chronic illnesses, debilitating illnesses. Now, as the representative of God's kingdom or God's neighborhood of the, the restoration that um, God intends to uh, fulfill when Christ returns, there's a foretaste of that, of course, given in in healing um, the physical maladies, uh, we as the church um, do have a responsibility of, of being present and loving those who suffer um, from chronic illness and chronic pain and um, mental and emotional um, conditions, anxiety, depression, um, we may not obviously be able to heal them instantaneously, but the fellowship and the love and the concern and the compassion that we show does have a healing effect and does give still a foretaste of the fellowship to come when God's neighborhood is fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. And then it says, in verse 25 of Matthew 4, uh, 4, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So he's got these large crowds from all over uh, the area who are following, and we can imagine that there were children, there were poor people, there were hungry people, there were... Um, you know, maybe uh, people that we would kind of classify today as uh, also maybe soccer moms, <laughs> I don't know, you know, who are seeking purpose, who are looking for something else. Um, and I, I can't help but think about the parallels in Mr. Rogers' TV neighborhood of, of children and their caregivers and, and perhaps even overworked caregivers, single mothers, 
grandparents watching their grandchildren and perhaps even children whose whose bellies are growling um, with hunger who got that daily dose of compassion and community and neighborliness from Mr. Rogers who understood how to be a neighbor for his audience no matter who they were and what walk of life they came from. And so considering the Sermon on the Mount, considering how you preach it and teach it, um, like we see with Jesus, like we would see with Fred Rogers, he's going to begin with considering your audience in their particularity, their stories, their struggles, their hopes, their fears. So Jesus's audience consists of these uh, this motley crowd that is following him, and of course his core of disciples that he has gathered, and he he goes up the mountain seeing the crowds. He goes to a mountainside, and he sits down, and his disciples come to him, and he begins to teach them, and this is where we get the Beatitudes. This is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, he opens and closes that, right, with these references to the kingdom of heaven. We can understand it as God's neighborhood. Let's talk about how to hear these words. Um, these should not be heard as ideals uh, to live up to. Uh, these are words of blessing. These are words of grace to people who are poor and who mourn and who hunger and thirst. And we could, we could apply that physically. We could also apply that spiritually to people who are at the end of their rope. Now, of course, people would say, well, what about the, the peacemakers and the merciful? And that is true. I think that we, we, we see humans who, for various reasons, they, they have hearts that incline to peace and to mercy. We see people who um, likewise are persecuted. Once again, though, I would suggest that we not read this as standards to live up to. I mean, trying to try to go out and be meek that <laughs> um, that will not work very well uh, these are people who are already mourning and who are already hungering and thirsting for uh, righteousness either because they understand the depths of their own unrighteousness or because they see uh, the evil in the world and they're having a, a difficult time. Um, living with that, perhaps it's touching their own lives. Hear the Beatitudes as words of welcome. Um, 
even if you don't neatly fit into one of these categories, even though I would suggest that everyone who is drawn to Christ does. I, I would suggest that uh, you hear these as words of blessing, you hear these as words of welcome, you hear these as words of grace, and then you think of it in terms of these are the people valued, beloved, and blessed of God. Let's take that back to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and how he would often have guests, right? And then occasionally... You would see people, you know, like Yo-Yo Ma or someone who is very talented, very gifted at something. But a lot of times they would just be normal people from normal walks of life. Or even, um, of course, one of his uh, most famous guests is the young man who was in a wheelchair and was demonstrating his, his electronic wheelchair for the television neighbors and was discussing his own um, physical struggles and limitations and the things that he had suffered uh, in his life due to his disability. And so one of the things that Mr. Rogers models for us is in fact having that sort of welcoming, um, gracious heart for people who come into the neighborhood from all walks, all levels of expertise, but they are there um, seeking neighborliness, and he models that for them, and he models that for uh, his television audience. In the same way, uh, the church does well to model uh, the welcome that we see in the Beatitudes, the welcome of those who are poor in spirit, who are, for whatever reason, kind of crushed by life, who are mourning, who are hungering and thirsting for uh, their own restoration and the restoration of creation. Um, these are people who are drawn to Christ, and they are often, of course, vulnerable, and as we all are, they're imperfect and they're flawed, and of course, that, that ends up being all of us, doesn't it? Mr. Rogers, I think when you watch how in his show he would welcome all of these people from various walks of life and, and truly be interested in their life and their story. Um, and that shows you a model for Christian witness, for Christian compassion, and really for respecting the Beatitudes on their own terms. Now, as I said earlier, there is no way for me to engage with all of the text of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, not just because of the format of what I'm doing, where I'm, I'm hoping to allow um, the words and the work and the witness of Fred Rogers to kind of intersect with the text and what we do with it, but also because, frankly, I mean, not everything in the Sermon on the Mount um, lends itself 
to a kind of uh, direct here you can connect the dots between what Jesus is saying in something in Fred Rogers' world. Um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And once again, I'm, I'm, I'm being suggestive. I'm, I'm thinking about a larger paradigm here. But one thing to kind of keep in mind uh, when you're thinking about how uh, to understand kind of the broader agenda of the Sermon on the Mount is that if you if you look at Matthew 5 17 Jesus says I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets but to fulfill them and then in Matthew 7:12 of course the the famous golden rule um, therefore uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you and Jesus says with that, for this is the law and the prophets. So what you have right there at the beginning of the sermon and then toward the close of the sermon is this mention of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the fulfillment of everything that Scripture has been um, pointing out to us. And Jesus says, ultimately, the moral law comes down to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And of course, Mr. Rogers, as an ordained Presbyterian minister, deeply influenced by that, um, by that ethic, and he said, All we're ever asked to do in this life is to treat our neighbor, especially our neighbor who is in need, exactly as we would hope to be treated ourselves. That's our ultimate responsibility. Right, as Jesus says, that is how we fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, one thing I do want to caution with that is that what what you cannot do and what you must not do, and what I, I certainly neither Jesus uh, nor Fred Rogers would want you to do, is that when you see a person in need, you see a person in distress, <laughs> you see a person in sin, what you must not do is to project yourself onto them and say, well, you know, if I was in their situation, this would be the best thing. No, no, no. You do have to take into account who that person is and their situation and their personality. And, and that is something that comes through the, the pastoral uh, development of, of being able to uh, be attentive and to listen and to be open to the other. Um, that is something that is not necessarily taught in a textbook, right, in seminary. Um, there is a story about two young men who are college-aged, who went to go visit with Fred Rogers, and one of the young men, they'd remembered him from childhood, and one of the young men had a stutter. And um, as, as he kind of stammered out trying to speak to his childhood hero, Mr. Rogers did not uh, try to help him complete his sentence. He did not uh, 
try to um, he didn't show any 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 sign of being uncomfortable about the young man's stutter. He patiently uh, waited and listened carefully for the young man to get out what he was saying, and he even encouraged him by, um, you know, kind of touching his arm in an encouraging way at points in the conversation. And that young man was very impressed by that because, once again, the Mr. Rogers that you got in real life was the Mr. Rogers that you saw on television. There was that integrity to his character. And in that kind of thing is not something that is taught in seminary or textbooks. Uh, that is part of the, the sanctification of a lifetime of ministry uh, that teaches us, in the words of James, to um, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger or impatience or frustration or slow to fix the other person. So I would, I would give that, that idea of fulfilling the law and the prophets um, by treating others as you would wish to be treated in their situation um, as definitely an overarching guide for how you approach anything in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you look at the general structure of the Sermon on the Mount, what you will observe is that there are three main, let's call them points or movements, in the body of the sermon. Uh, the first goes from Matthew 5, 21 down to verse 48, and that's specifically Jesus uh, interpreting Torah, interpreting the moral law. Then you have a, a section that begins at chapter 6, uh, verse 1, and is going to go all the way down to... Well, yeah, about 18, 618, and that is Jesus kind of giving his teaching on uh, religious practices, and then you have a section that runs from Matthew 619 all the way down to 712, and, and this is a, a basically proverbial. You could call this uh, wisdom teaching. And one of the things that we see over and over and over and over again, a feature that you see if you look, is that there is a sense in which Jesus is using um, quite a bit of hyperbole, quite a bit of metaphor in his teaching. And you, you do not want to press some of it too literally. And I think the, the beautiful thing of, of when you recognize that kind of when you recognize, okay, this is what Jesus is talking about, and, and here is how he is talking about it, this opens up more avenues to engage with the Fred Rogers kind of style of, of teaching. Um, really, you could call it discipling. Uh, it was Mr. Rogers, of course, who, who mentions that disciple and discipline have the same root, right? So it's a teaching learning kind of experience. Um, and, you know, when you teach your child to tie their shoes, you are discipling them in shoe tying. Uh, kind of what I want to do is to kind of approach more of uh, that first section real quick, uh, the Matthew uh, 5, 21 through 48 section. And once again, I can't engage with all of it, but there's an interesting uh, kind of, uh, I don't want to call it bookends, 
But it's interesting if you look at the beginning of it, of that section, and then kind of come to an end of it, because it starts with, with anger and murder, and it ends with um, overcoming hatred with peacemaking. Um, and so Matthew uh, 5, 21 through 26, let's, let's listen to that. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get, get out until you have paid the last penny. So there in that beginning section, Jesus is actually employing a lot of imagination in the sense that he's he's telling you that what begins with this anger that you will not let go can turn into a verbal argument, can turn physical, and then you've ended up murdering somebody. But he's envisioning, right, these scenarios in which you are reconciled to someone um, instead of coming to that place of judgment that is looming if you allow the anger and the passion and the hatred to, to, to cause you to say and do things that you ought not want to say and do, right? And he specifically envisions um, the, the two brothers and there's an anger between them and they're going to offer sacrifice. And, you know, if you don't step out of it, that's going to lead to murder. Who is that? That's Jesus re-envisioning Cain and Abel. That, that's what that is. Right. And then he also um, obviously has kind of the court case where someone will get a judgment against you if you don't come to terms with them um, before you get to court. Uh, so I want you to kind of bear that in mind that there's definitely um, hyperbole, there's metaphor, this is symbolic language in a lot of ways. Now, if you if you if you go down to verses forty three through forty eight, which marks the end of this section, um, you have heard that it was said, "Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Once again, I would, I would suggest here that while there are indeed imperatives 
uh, to be fulfilled here, Christ is is calling us to envision in um, in an expansive and healthy way what it would look like to love people who are our actual enemies or who would consider themselves our enemies. What would it lo- look like to engage them in a loving manner? And I think that Mr. Rogers, if you if you think about his work um, and his words and his example, he, he gives us some really interesting um, resources to kind of go about that project of imagining uh, reconciliation and imagining what it could be like to um, love our enemies in, in very constructive and healthy ways. One of the things that I love about what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, the very two, first two things he tackles, right, are, are anger and, and lust, uh, in talking about uh, violence, murder, and adultery. And so his assumption is that we are, we are going to be angry, and at times that anger may even be justified. I think it's interesting, uh, the passage where Paul says, be angry and sin not, uh, be angry, where <laughs> he says that, is actually an imperative. So there are times where, where anger is, in fact, appropriate. It is what we do with our anger, how we act upon our anger, that makes the difference. And I think about what Mr. Rogers, the song that he would sing with with kids, what do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right, what do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you can go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and to be able to do something else instead and think this song I can stop when I want to, stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine. The thing that I love about this, he's not telling children or the adults who are listening to bury your feelings, pretend like you're angry when you are not. He is praising the fact that you take ownership and you take responsibility of your anger and what you do with it. And that's what I hear Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he addresses anger and and using that to work toward uh, reconciliation. And I think that obviously is going to, to spill into what he says about enemy love, right? Because there are people that we are justifiably angry at. Now, there are also the, 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 the kind of divisions that are primarily cultural. And yes, there are real wounds and real damage there. But what you find, and I think especially in our culture that 
just turns its nose up at any kind of uh, of preaching that sounds scolding to them, um, right? Uh, they've 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 been able to we 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 have a we have a, a bent even toward a lot of Christians in pulling that do not judge passage from the Sermon on the Mount way out of context. Um, Mister Rogers provided a really cool example of that too, and that is in 1969 when America was in the throes of 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 you know really more than a decade now of serious um, civil unrest, serious violence, um, polarization around the issue of race. And think about this. What he did very intentionally was to invite Francois Clemens, a young college student, black gentleman from Alabama, so from the South, to be the police officer in his neighborhood to play that role uh, Clemens was, for many reasons, reticent to do that, but Mr. Rogers was able to convince uh, Francois Clemens of his vision. And think about it this way, if you are a, a child, whether uh, white or black, or, you know, a person of color, and you, the images that you are used to seeing, either on your television or in actual life, Right, are are these angry white police officers um, beating on people? And then you you look on the television and you see Fred Rogers, this grandfatherly white man, and this this young black man, uh, Francois Clemens, who is the 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 police officer in the neighborhood. Right. Now you begin to envision that another sort of, of world is possible. You begin to envision um, a future that you can play a part in building where it, it does not look like the right now. So he, in this very non-invasive, non-preachy way, <laughs> um, Mr. Rogers did something incredibly subversive there and 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 captivated imaginations of how things could look differently. Of course, another thing, the way that he introduced Clemens in that situation was that on a hot day in the neighborhood, um, Mr. Rogers is soaking his feet in a, a little tub of, of cool water, a little kiddie pool, and he invites Officer Clemens to come and soak his feet as well. And the camera pans down to Roger's white feet and, and Francois Clemens' brown feet side by side there in the pool. And then Clemens says, well, you know what? I don't have a towel. And Mr. Rogers says, you can use mine. And he reaches out and he dries off this um, black gentleman's feet. And people now, I think, don't grasp how revolutionary and how subversive without raising his voice, right? That that was in 1968-1969. In fact, that particular moment was responding to a cultural moment where civil rights activists had tried to integrate a hotel pool and the the hotel owner 
came out and actually poured acidic cleaning solution into the pool um, to chase these people out. And so here you have Mr. Rogers very intentionally in the wake of that incident showing his feet side by side in a pool with a person of color. This provides, I think, a template for reconciliation. This provides a template for enemy love. This provides Christians, I would say, even with, with the kind of template for doing what Jesus said and says, look, if you, you know, if someone's got something against you, if there is an issue, you, you work to correct that before you make your offering to God. And I think that's something we get exactly backwards sometime. What Mr. Rogers did in that moment was to treat Francois Clemens as someone else made in the image of God. And this is what Christ is calling us back to. Now, I mentioned that this particular incident could provide a template even for what Jesus says about enemy love. And I want to go into that a little bit more. Uh, Francois Clemens stayed on the Mr. Rogers program for 25 seasons, finally retiring in 1993 to go teach music at a college. But, the, the, of course, the send-off that Fred Rogers gave him was amazing because he ends it full circle from where they began with the two of them on a hot summer day soaking their feet together in a little kiddie pool. And Mr. Rogers and, and Francois Clemens sang uh, the classic Mr. Rogers song, There Are Many Ways to Say I Love You. Jesus says, love your enemies. <sighs> Mr. Rogers reminds us that love is not a state of perfect caring. It is an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. Now that being said, I, I, that does not mean, and I do not believe that Fred Rogers would take that to mean to accept them as they are right here and right now. Does that mean to approve of or condone everything that they are or are doing right here and now? Um, love for anyone, including your enemies, and maybe especially enemies, will also require, it's, it's not a sentimental feeling. It's not, it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. Um, there, there is no requirement that uh, there's no boundaries being set when it comes to your safety, uh, your protection. Um, I know in, in some portions of the evangelical world today, to uh, mention anything about self-preservation uh, just seems utterly selfish, but love does have boundaries. Love does have boundaries, right? Even as we express love for sinners in the church, there are certain sinners, predators, abusers, bully or, you know, bullies, oppressors, 
Jesus calls them, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would call such people wolves. You cannot show the same hospitality to a wolf as you do the sheep if you're going to protect the sheep. Mr. Rogers does a wonderful thing by reminding us that there are many ways to say I love you. And those can include an expression of love that still maintains healthy boundaries. Many ways to say I love you. Many versions of this song uh, Mr. Rogers sang on his show. Uh, often he would he would switch up the lyrics to be situationally appropriate, but there there was always a core to the song. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways to say I love you. There's the singing way to say I love you. There's the singing something someone really likes to hear. The singing way, the singing way to say I love you. Cleaning up a room can say I love you. Hanging up a coat before you're asked to. Drawing special pictures for the holidays and making plays. You'll find many ways to say I love you. You'll find many ways to understand what love is. Many ways, many ways to say I love you. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, there needs to be a maturity and perhaps even a thinking through together and a discerning um, with ourselves, with other people, right, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit of what it means to love the enemy who is toxic, who is threatening, um, the one who's outside of perhaps the, the daily scope of conflict, drama or prejudices we get wisdom from mr rogers who tells us that there are indeed many ways to express love and like he says love is is an active noun really it's a verb can be right like struggle <laughs> um we need to remember that and not simply have a sentimental love in mind when Christ says to love our enemies to where that love excludes boundaries and that love excludes accountability and that love excludes justice because love without honor, love without protecting the vulnerable, love without understanding your human limitations is not true love. It can be destructive. And and so Mr. Rogers actually is, I think, a helpful guide in helping us think through responsible, healthy, boundary-respecting, but still tangible ways of loving enemies. I wish I could say much, much more but we are running out of time. 
So just a couple of things that I want to once again suggest to you. One of the things I, I mentioned earlier is that Christ in the Sermon on the Mount often engaged in uh, hyperbole, even make-believe. So <laughs> watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Watch how um, he uses the neighborhood of make-believe to help children work through conflicts and situations in their hearts and minds and in life and difficult things like that in a way that's contextually appropriate for children. You know, Jesus says, makes those statements like, you know, if with lust, if your right eye is causing you to stumble into lust, plug it out. Right? And that's obviously hyperbole. How do we contextualize that in a way that, that doesn't contextualize it to where it has no oomph, right? But, um, you know, with it, taking the power out of it, but maybe as, as, as an addendum to help people work through what that looks like in real time. Mr. Rogers had a wonderful way of guiding the imagination through dealing with problems and issues and conflicts in the neighborhood of make-believe. One of those wonderful kind of um, metaphorical or proverbial, um, let's say, make-believe ways that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, very famous, right? Matthew 7, beginning in verse 1, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Often our judgments of others are rooted in our own shame and in our own unwillingness to confess and confront our own sins and shortcomings. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is about what Jesus is calling us to do with this talk about wooden eyes, right? The plank in your eyes and the sawdust in the other guy's eye. One of the things he's calling us to do and to recognize that in the presence of sin, your first response ought to always be confession of your own sin and your own weakness. It is a truth-telling that that requires for you to be able to be helpful to others who struggle. Mr. Rogers sang about this in the song, The Truth Will Make Me Free. He sings, What if I were very, very sad, and all I did was smile? I wonder after a while what might become of my sadness. What if I were very, very angry, and all I did was sit and never think about it. What might become of my anger? Well, that sadness and that anger, we understand, is going to overflow into projection onto others, right? And, and, and he asked, where would they go and what would they do if I couldn't let them out? Maybe I'd fall, maybe get sick or doubt. But what if I could know the truth and just Say how I feel. I think I'd learn a lot that's real about freedom. 
ultimately there is something liberating in being able to confess our own sinfulness, our own weakness, our own struggle. And it's only when we've experienced that liberation, coram Dio, before God, with Christ's righteousness and holiness covering us, that we can express that in a healthy way with other people, in a way where we've taken the plank out of our own eye before we try to help them. Because otherwise, what we're going to end up saying is, your sin is making me uncomfortable, or your depression is making me uncomfortable, or this annoying thing you're doing is making me uncomfortable. And we're going to be doing that from a place of selfishness, right? We're not going to be able to help them because we're projecting our shame and our unresolved conflicts onto them. One other thing I want to bring up, and then this is yours. Jesus, of course, uh, talks about false prophets, false teachers. Watch out for false prophets. This is Matthew 5, 17. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, we have often in the church understood this to be about people teaching false doctrine, teaching heresy, blasphemy, and that is an appropriate application. But we also need to understand that not everyone in the church who comes to us saying, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, is a safe person. I mentioned earlier predators, oppressors, abusers, bullies. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Mr. Rogers, and this is maybe an over-quoted thing, right? He always says, look for the helpers. If you are an adult of sound mind, if you are a mature Christian, you don't get to look for the helpers. He's saying that to children who don't have agency in their neighborhood. You do, especially if you are a pastor, you are an elder, you are a leader in the church, you do have agency. You need to cultivate habits and boundaries that allow you to be the helper and protect the flock from the ferocious wolves that will be there. Ultimately, this is going to be going back to the Beatitudes at the beginning. The people who come to you, they are vulnerable, right? These are the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn. These are the meek. These are the hungry and thirsty. We have a job as Christians and especially as leaders in God's church to protect the flock from wolves, to be helpful, to nurture a safe, supportive neighborhood in our church. Mr. Rogers can only go so far in teaching you how to do that, but I'm imploring anyone who listens to educate yourself, and to have the backbone to be the helper in that situation. 
that the vulnerable in your flock need you to be so that the church can truly flourish as God's neighborhood.